All right, good to see everybody. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. See, if it was Mother's Day like a couple weeks ago, I mean, we'd be all hoopla and stuff like that. Can't even get excited for Father's Day. Um, tell you what, one of the things I prayed for, uh, and I didn't pray for a lot of things, but one of the, the things I specifically prayed for as we were starting our church is that God would, God would send us men. And so I'm appreciative that we have a church uh, that has men in it, and particularly uh, fathers. We're going to talk about the family today, and as we get into talking about that a little bit, this is, this, the statistic is that um, we are becoming more family-less in our culture and perhaps even around the world. And so, fathers, the role that you play in your families, loving, serving, laboring, sacrificing, is an important thing that you do. And so God, may God strengthen you um, to be the dad, the husband, uh, the man at home, uh, that you probably already are on, on the workforce, and, uh, and may he give us uh, all that we need to, to be fathers um, to, our, to our families. All right, grab your Bibles. We are continuing in our series in Mark, and we're in chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 7 and go all the way through the end of the chapter. A lot of verses here today, and we're going to uh, actually labor to read these verses out loud together as much as you are willing to do so. So chapter 3, starting at verse 7, going all the way through the end of the chapter. And you can cheat and read these on the screen if you'd like. There's some Bibles down the center aisle. Grab them if you want and read along with us. Here we go. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boagenes, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons and he called to them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, 
But whatever blasphemies they ever, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for a day, a beautiful day, the beginning of summer. Thank you for the gathering of your church. And, uh, and Lord, we're here because we need you. We're here because we want a word from you. We're here, we're here because uh, you've told us to not forsake the gathering of your church. And so we do that today. And so we ask that you speak to us, God, that we would hear you speaking to us corporately as a church, as transit church, that we would hear you speaking to our hearts uh, individually. Words that we need to hear, particularly in regards to family, the family that God is calling to himself. And we pray that we would hear your gospel and that it would change us as it so often does. We pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. All right, so we're in Mark, continuing through this series. And one of the things that we are doing as we really go verse by verse throughout the, the gospel is, of Mark is, is to learn three things, really, who Jesus is, what he came to do, and uh, probably not above all that, but definitely commensurate with it. We want to know how we're uh, how we're supposed to follow him. And you know, a lot of us in this room are Christians, and perhaps you take the time to do devotions. You read a lot of the Bible, and perhaps you even know a lot about what the Bible says about a lot of different stuff. But how much time do you spend learning about Jesus? Because here's the thing about the Bible. The Bible is pointing to Jesus. The, the whole point of the Bible is to make him known who he is, what he came to do, his person and his work. And so today we have a long passage. We're going to finish chapter three. And our theme is the family. Uh, and that's fitting. It's Father's Day. So fathers, you think about uh, family, leading families and, and all that. And as I said and, and before I, we read the scriptures together, uh, it's appropriate that we talk about family because we are in a culture in today's day that's becoming more and more family less. There's been lots of research done on families. One in particular that I was looking at this week is done by Pew Research Institute. And the Pew Research Institute, since the 60s, um, has had this ongoing uh, re research that shows us the, the gradual and increasing decline of the family, starting in the in the 60s, for the most part, they they have shown that kids living in a home with two married persons, heterosexual parents who are in their first marriage is declining to the point that in the 60s, there were about 73 percent of children that fit that description. Fast forward to the 1980s and there's 61 percent of people that fit that description. And the, the research that I was reading is about from a year and a half ago. They say there's less than 46 percent, so even less than half of kids nowadays that are growing up with two parent, two heterosexual parents that are married, that are in their first marriage. And what that says to us is that there's firstly a, a huge change in the landscape of our culture, particularly as it relates to family. 
But what it's saying more from, from my perspective is our culture is becoming more family less. One sociologist writes this. He says the weakening of the family is the most negatively impactful development of our time. Of course, that would be those are contentious words, depending on where you are in regards to what you think about the family, what the, fam- what the family actually is made up of. And this sociologist, his name is Christopher Lash. He's written a book, Haven in a Heartless World. He goes on to describe the breakdown of the normal biological family as a calamity for society at large and for individuals who are all affected. And some of you know this full well because you come from families that perhaps are broken, that are dysfunctional in some way. Perhaps you come from a family where you only had one parent or those parents got divorced. I'm from a divorced family, so uh, pretty much all of us have some kind of dysfunction in our family. And here's what happens with the weakening of the family uh, in in our culture. It weakens our nation. Of course, those are, again, contentious remarks, and some would not have that perspective. But as a Christian, we should understand this because it, we read about this in the Bible, right? I mean, theology tells us that when God started the world, he started with a family. God, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. He created something out of nothing. And one of the principal things that God does when he creates mankind is he decides that it's not good for Adam to be alone. And so he gives Adam Eve and Pretty soon they have kids. He gives them a command to procreate, to be fruitful and to multiply. So we can say that in the very beginning, God's design and his desire was for humans to have families. And here's the thing. Through that family, God would display his glory um, in all the earth. God intends for his glory to be seen not just in flowers that bloom in a sun that that shines and in the things of creation, but in the principal part of his creation, in human beings, in the human family. And so God's plan in Genesis 1 and 2 was that the family would uh, fill the earth and that his glory would be seen through it. Of course, Genesis 3 happens. What happens in Genesis 3? S word, right? Sin. Sin enters the world. And when we sin and all of us in this room sin, Ultimately, that's us rebelling against what God's wise and wonderful plan is for us and for his world. And we see it right there in Genesis 3. We, Adam and Eve, sin. They choose their own way. And all of us, in a sense, sin in that same way. And that original sin leads to all kinds of other horrible things that happen. And so we sin enters in Genesis 3. And one of the principal things that happened is that we, we, we now die. We, we die both uh, physically, but we also die spiritually. And, and spiritual death is such that we have this slow departing from, from God and from his presence. Uh, but not just as individuals, that spreads really to, to the family. It spreads to all the, the human institutions uh, and that our society would have as organizing groups of humans. And so when we read about that first family, in fact, you got Adam and Eve and they procreate. They have two kids and we see the effect of sin on the family right off. You know, there's only four people on the earth, Adam and Eve and their two kids. And what happens to those two sons, Cain and Abel, the older son murders the younger son. And why does he do it? Because he's a little jealous. That's what sin does. And so from Genesis 3 onwards in our Bibles, what we see is the slow degradation of the family. And it stems not because God made the family bad. It stems because 
There's sin in us. There's sin in our hearts, and it wreaks havoc on everything that we can touch with our hands and with our lives. And of course, it still happens today. Which is why I say that the culture that we're living in is increasingly family-less. It's because of sin, and the nuclear family is really the gets the negative result of this. And if you think about it, um, all of us, whether we admit it or not, we need family. We, we want family. Um, I can think of several things in our society where there's a lack of family and, and, and we look for things to, to replicate it. If you're on a sports team, we speak of sports teams themselves as families. If you're in the military, uh, many, many years ago when I was in the Army, we came up with a slogan, the Army family. We call ourselves brothers and sisters in arms. If you're in the corporate world, the businesses have today created cultures to try and replicate the family. And so what we have is when we, whenever we are missing uh, uh sort of the context of family in our lives, we would go to the extent of trying to replicate it in other things. But here's what the Bible uh, commends to us more than anything else. We were created to be a part of not just a family. We were created to be a part of God's family. And so what Jesus is going to do in this text today is he's going to, uh, he's going to help us understand what God's family looks like. And more particularly, all right, so spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you what the, the, the end of my sermon from the very beginning. Spoiler alert is Jesus says, uh, I'm the focal point of the family. In other words, you can't even be a part of God's family unless you come through me, unless you trust me, ask me to forgive you of your sins and live your life, as, as the text will say, wholeheartedly, uh, living out God's will as if you were living it, submitting it to me. And so in other words, what, God, what Jesus is doing in our text, but as he comes on planet Earth to live life as a human being and eventually go to the cross and, and die in our place for our sins, Jesus is gathering back the family of God, the family that God intended to have in the, uh, originally with Adam and Eve, such that they would purvey the earth. Jesus is, is, is buying that back with the ransom of his blood. And that brings us to our text. Look at verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. All right. So previous to this, obviously, John the Baptist comes. He preaches that one is coming whose sandals I'm not able to untie. He's going to be mightier than anything that you know. Jesus comes on the scene. He gets baptized. He gets anointed for a mission, a mission of what? Of preaching the gospel, of making the kingdom of God known. And one of the ways that he makes the kingdom of God known is he starts healing people. He starts speaking with authority such that people would be, I mean, just automatically attracted to him. He starts casting out demons from people. He starts healing lepers. And the last thing that we've seen in the text right before what we're reading today, Nick preached last week, and Jesus has just healed a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and the religious leaders are just like livid. There's like, who in the world would think they could do that? And Jesus basically says, I can. Why? Because I'm God. And so 
right here in the verses 7 through 12, uh, basically what we're getting is we're getting some insider notes. This is kind of a transition paragraph. He's, he's, he's telling us this is where Jesus is and this is what he's getting ready to do. And so here's some insider notes to what you would read in, in verses 7 and beyond. Firstly, Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem are all west of where Jesus currently is right now. Where is he? He's going to Capernaum, right? And so he's grown up in Galilee and he has repositioned himself in Capernaum to begin his ministry. And he stays there. We don't know how long, but definitely a few months, perhaps even the first year of his ministry. And he's still there. And so Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, all cities that Mark is mentioning, they're west of where Jesus is. Idumea is 150 miles south. Tyre is 150 miles north. And so here's the picture that Mark is giving us, that crowds are coming to Jesus and they're coming from all over. They're hearing about this Jesus. They're hearing that he can heal. They're hearing just crazy stuff about whoever this guy is. And here's the, here's the interesting thing. They actually still don't really know who he is. They're coming to him because of the spectacle of what they've heard. Perhaps they have an ailment that they just want to get close to him. They want to touch him. They want to hear what he has to say. But really, for the most part, none of these people actually know who Jesus is. And the big question is, who is he? They're trying to figure that out. But in the meantime, you've got huge crowds coming, massive crowds coming to check him out. But here's the interesting thing in, in this opening paragraph, and it's in the last two verses, verses 11 and, and 12. The demons know who Jesus is. In verse 11, it, it tells us the demons are very sure. In fact, they have absolute clarity that Jesus is not a normal man. They actually call him by one of his primary titles. They call him the son of God, which is the testimony that Mark gives us in the very beginning of his gospel. And so here's the other thing I think this summary paragraph is trying to, to, to alert us to. And this is um, I think it's subtle, but but I see it here and I, I think it's going to bless you when you hear it. Mark is helping us see a regular day in the life of Jesus. Have you ever thought that Jesus might have just like normal days like we we do, like the rhythm of his day? What's the rhythm of your day? For most of you, you get up kind of early. You're getting dressed, perhaps having a little breakfast. Maybe you just have a little bit of coffee and and you're out. And at least 60 percent of you have some kind of commute. If you're a student, you're going to go to school. Actually, school's over. Congratulations to all the kiddos that just finished school. Fairfax County gets out so late. Man, summer's already here. People at the pool, like in other parts of the country, congratulations to all our kids that just finished the school year. All right, so perhaps if you're a student, school's just finished and you're at the pool, all right? But for the rest of us, I mean, we're going on with our day. There's tasks to be performed. We're going to get to work and we're going to have some clients. Or there's, there's, there's stuff to be done. Uh, all kinds of things, errands, responsibilities of varying sorts. And, you know, if you're in the workplace or if you're a, a stay at home uh, mom or dad in, in any sense, it can feel like stuff is starting to pile up. And we can kind of regret the busyness, the hectic nature of our day, but right here in the middle, at, I mean, just in the beginning of this text, here's what Mark is telling us. He's reminding us that Jesus is human, and this dude has a normal daily grind. And it's a daily grind that I've, as I look at it, man, I'm just getting exhausted thinking about all the things that Jesus has to do. Healing people, people just wanting to touch you. I mean, and if you're like an introvert, that would like drive you nuts, wouldn't it? 
like people always clamoring to have to hear a word from you or to just touch you or to, to have some piece of you. And Jesus is living that fully crowds coming from all over the place. The Hebrew writer says Jesus was tempted in every way like us. And we should not dismiss the fact that this is one of the ways that Jesus was probably tempted in his humanity. Jesus doesn't have this like uh, divinity amex that he breaks out. It's like, all right, I'm going to like cash in, cha-ching, and I'm just going to like slip out of the human experience right now while all these crowds are gathering around. When y'all disappear, I'm going to come back and be the God man again. He doesn't do that. He, he lives through it so much so that he tells his disciples to get a boat ready. Because he knows these crowds are so adamant at getting to him, touching him, feeling him, seeing him, hearing him, that they might even crush him. Now, Mark doesn't resolve this. He doesn't tell us what happens with this boat. We don't even know if they actually used it. But we know that Jesus is so human that he thought through the fact, all right, this is like the the, the parade downtown celebrating the Capitals winning the the Stanley Cup. They're going to like press me. And I don't actually want to be pressed. Get the boat ready, guys. And it's a so that's an interesting thing. And so we should be encouraged by that. When you when you feel tired, when you feel hopeless, when you feel self-pity, when you feel discouraged about what your life looks like. This is a weighty day for Jesus. I wouldn't want to be in Jesus shoes right here. This seems exhausting to me. And whatever the exhausting nature of your daily grind is, know that Jesus lived this with you. And he's able to strengthen you as you tap into not your power, but his power. Jesus knows what it's like to live the daily grind. So from here, uh, he actually turns to a different corner. Look at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he had desired, and they came to him. The mountain motif is an important kind of symbology in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. If you think about mountains in the Old Testament, it, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen revelatory between God's people and himself on a mountain. Think of Moses going to the mountain where he sees the burning bush. God speaks to him and God tells him, all right, I'm going to I'm going to send you out to do some specific things uh, in my name. Think of Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai where they received the covenant, God's covenantal uh, instructions to them, the way they were supposed to as a as a nation, as a family live before him. Think of Elijah fleeing from Jezebel in first Kings 19. Elijah was scared and he went to the mountain and there God um, met him in a still small voice and gave him instructions about the rest of his life. And of course, the rest of his life, it would be a very small slit because Elisha would come on and take over his ministry. And then think of Jesus, the things that happened with Jesus on the mountain. Think of the famous Sermon on the Mount where he sermonized to uh, hundreds and thousands of people. Think of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration where God met him and Moses and, and Elijah. And then think of him here deliberating over who the twelve would be that he's calling to himself. Verse 14. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Our right, inter- interesting um Two sets of words. Mark is, you know, he's got this immediate nature. We don't actually see the word immediate in the text today, but Mark is only giving us highlights. He's like, all right, so Jesus went to done this, then he did this, and then he, he called the 12 to himself. And, that, and he's doing that without any, any fanfare, but this is a hinge moment. I mean, there's, he's turning the corner, and then there's a lot of revelation going on in these, in these few words. Particularly, this is a big deal because these are these aren't just dudes that he's hanging out with to have a, a, a beer and a stogie. That's not what he's going to do 
with these guys. This is one of those places where the Old Testament and the New Testament are uniquely aligning, where the New Testament is revealing stuff that the Old Testament talked to us about and we had no framework about what am I supposed to do to do with that. And the, um, some, some specific things I want to point out. Firstly, the word appointed that, that Mark uses is the same word uh, used in Genesis that God, uh, where God created something. And so when, when, when Mark says that Jesus appointed um, 12 apostles, he's creating something that did not exist before. The word apostle is one who was sent. And so what are these men going to be going to do? They're going to be sent out and do the very same thing that Jesus did as he's coming on the scene, preaching the gospel, announcing the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, and, and doing that in the authority of Jesus. And so they're doing that same thing. And you may not take notice of this, but this is a place in the text that's not disconnected from where we are. And I think that's probably the most important thing. This, these two verses, what's happening in the scene right here as Jesus calls these 12 apostles to himself is related to you and I being in God's kingdom, being in God's family. And, 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 the, and the clue is Jesus calling 12 disciples to himself. Now, let me give you a test. If I were to ask those of you here, how many representatives are there in the U.S. House of Representatives, you would say what? Amen to that. As a school teacher, you cheated. I should have I said, Peyton Avery, don't you say anything. You just messed up the whole test. Now, be honest. Most of you, most of you I had to look it up. I, I'm, I'm just being real. I had to look it up, but I knew I needed to test you all. Here's another test. How many of you know how many council members are on the city of Alexandria City Council or Vienna City Council or Annandale City or, you know, those small towns and villages where you live? Uh, got you on that one, right? I mean, none of us know that kind of thing. And I mean, it's like, oh, man, let me roll the, roll the Rolodex like back to government class in high school. I mean, prep, I mean, it's, that stuff not, we don't have room in our brains for that kind of stuff. Not, not now, as an adult. Here's the thing. Every Jew, even in the first century, would have known how many tribes there were in Israel. It's a part of their identity. And so when Jesus, like, come up, comes out and says, I'm calling 12 men to himself, automatically lights would have gone off and they would have connected the 12 tribes of Israel and this hope that, that God is going to resurrect these tribes that have long since gone into exile and never been put back together, that, that God is doing something. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying that God is bringing all this that was lost through exile, through the people of God disobeying. God is bringing all that back. And so, you know, let me go back a little bit. Adam, God, we talked about Adam and Eve and their sin. Okay, of course, God, uh, he... He redeems them. He kills an animal. He clothes them. And in, in a sense, he coddles Adam and Eve and even um, speaks a promise to them that they would go on. And, and, and God, you know, through a future seed would, would crush the Satan who is a, it was a source of their rebellion, uh, just crush his head. And so we see the beginning of God's family. So God leads and uh, sort of coddles and 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 calls and redeems Adam and Eve, and, and the, it's the beginning of a family. And 
that family begins to get names, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and of course, all of Genesis about this family, this lineage beginning to be formed. And it's through this family that God would not only form the nations of Israel, but he says that through all, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so, of course, the whole, estimate, old, old, the whole Old Testament is about how this family is formed and how they become a nation and how God through them would display his glory. But, but of course, that glory is short lived because at every turn, Israel ends up not being the people to display God's likeness glory that he uh, purported them to be. They, they sin. They do the same thing Adam and Eve does. They do what sin in us causes us to do. They rebel against God and they don't show forth the covenant family that God had put in them to show. They repeatedly sin. So by the time of Jesus, there's not 12 tribes anymore. In fact, 700 years before that, you can read that in the Old and Minor, minor Prophets, God has got sent the, the nation of Assyria to come in and at least the north, the 10 northern tribes, they, they were taken off into exile and they were obliterated, never even to this day to be brought back together again. And so in Jesus day, they're really only two tribes, Judah, a little bit of Levi, a little bit of Simeon and, and Benjamin, who were part of the, the, the southern tribes. And so. But here's the amazing thing. The Old Testament writers promised that they would, be, they would become a day when God himself would restore, would restore this, this family of people, that he would come and bring them back together, a great family, a great nation even. And they would, as they were intended to be in the beginning, be a light to the world, even as he intended it. And so this is the moment. This is the moment where that happens. But this is the moment, this is the catalyst to to it happening. And so these people gather together with, with Jesus, hearing that he's calling 12 people to himself. They would have longed for this day. They would have longed for any kind of sign that God was restoring um, what he had begun in the beginning, the this covenant with the people that would display his glory and all the world would be blessed by that. And him calling 12 people is just a catalyst to that and and you know all that that's a great history lesson right but but here's why this matters to you none of us sitting in this room whether you're a christian or not would be here in this room definitely listening to a talk about a jewish god by the name of jesus if this had not happened if god if jesus had not on this mountain called 12 men to himself and then what what of course what he would do is in subsequent moments after he would die and resurrect, he would bring them to another mountain and he would commission them. Matthew 28, right? He would commission them to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He would send them out, Acts 1-8, to the uttermost parts of Jerusalem and Samaria, Samaria and Judea. And they would find people who don't know Jesus and through their testimony and the power of the gospel would make Jesus, who he is and what he's come to do, known to those who are far from God. And those people would be included in God's family. This is what's happening here. As this is a catalyst to all that that would happen. So this moment right here in Mark's gospel stands as at the intersection of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Jesus, of course, is putting himself right in the center of it, saying, I'm doing what God has always been doing. I'm starting over. I'm reestablishing the family of God, and I'm doing it with these 12 
knucklehead apostles. And we meet these knucklehead apostles in verse 6. I shouldn't call them knuckleheads, but that's what they are. Verse 16. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boagenes, and that is the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This, this would be a great sermon, not because the Bible says a lot um, about these men that would become these 12 apostles, but because church history tells us, I mean, church history fills in the gaps. When you read historians like Josephus, it fills in the gaps of what all of these men who are named here and called apostles in the Bible went on to do as they took Jesus' command of making disciples throughout the nations and then calling people into the family of God. And I could go down the list, but we don't have time to do that. And that's not my point. But here's, here's three things that I think are interesting about this list of people. The first is there's nothing extraordinary about them. Think about it. You know about you know a little bit about some of them. The first four are just fishermen. Peter and his brother Andrew, James and John, they're fishermen. There's not an affluent person in this whole list that could fund Jesus' ministry or do anything significant. Of course, Matthew's a tax collector, and he would have had money, but he had it crookedly. And here's the other thing that, that um, that's not apparent, but it's true about this list. This, li- this list of people and the, the camaraderie that they share is only possible because of the gospel. you got Matthew, a tax collector, and you've got a guy here by the name of Simon the Zealot. And of course, it's Judas Iscariot. Those are people who, uh, Jude, uh, Simon, the, uh, Simon the Zealot, he, he would have been like a terrorist in his day. He would have been like right, like ultra right wing. He would have been against anything that, was, that, that the common person thought was good. But what, but what Jesus does with this group, of course, is teaches them the gospel, teaches them to follow him, and then beckons them to do the, um, I mean, just to, to go and change the world. Uh, which was not in them to do when he calls them out. And so in verse 20 tells us that after he calls this group to himself, leaving out a whole bunch of information as to well, how did he do that? What did he do? What did he say? We don't know any of that. Mark doesn't feel, uh, feel fit to, to tell, tell us any of that. It says that he went home. And when Jesus, when the Bible says Jesus is going home, at least in this point, where's he going? He's going to Capernaum. He's going to Peter's house. Verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. And so right after Jesus recreates the family of God, the the, the catalyst to create the family of God with these 12, 12 men that he calls disciples that will soon be called apostles. His biological family shows up on the scene and there's family drama. And so if, if you got any inkling of family drama in your in your family, which all of us do, right? You just don't want to admit it. I mean, this is this is safe ground to talk about it, right? Because Jesus' family was crazy too. In fact, as Jesus' family didn't think they were crazy. They thought he was crazy. In fact, they 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 say it so. The word seize here means to bind up. And so it I mean they came to arrest their own like brother or, or, or son. We don't know if uh, I'm assuming Mary is here and we don't know what happened to, to Joseph because the Bible doesn't mention him much after the birth narrative. 
But this is another one of those moments where the gospel writer is trying to make Jesus human. It's saying Jesus is a man, and the things that we experience here as humans, Jesus had this in his own family. His family was a little bit dysfunctional. In fact, he thinks they're crazy. Well, he doesn't say he thinks they're crazy. Obviously, there's something going on, but they think he's crazy. They want to take him away principally because he's shaming them. They're saying, man, he's bringing shame to our family. They're thinking people are saying all these things about Jesus. He's doing all these things. And even if they're good, you know, let's go snatch him up before he does something else that's going to derail him any more than he's already already derailed. And I think there's something we can learn about Jesus family here. And it's this. As the kingdom of God draws near through Jesus ministry, it forces people, even his family, to make decisions about who they're going to say Jesus is. These are the closest people to Jesus at this point, and they're they're making a decision as to who Jesus is. And perhaps we could just um, chime it up to the Holy Spirit of God has not revealed to them who Jesus is yet. And and of course, that's part of the answer. But the real deal is um, who he is is being unpacked at one miracle at a time, one thing coming out of his mouth at a time, and they would have been privy to that. They would have been exposed to that and yet they choose not to, um, to make light of it. But that's, I mean, there's people in our day that would, would, would make small of who Jesus is, just like Jesus' family is doing here. Think about the people that you know, perhaps even in your own family, that would um, despise you because of your love and serving and commitment to Jesus. There's people that would say, you know what, I'm going to go the, the respectful route and say, you know, there's probably something to this Jesus. I know he was a st- historical figure. He's probably a great moral teacher. He probably did some good in the world. And while these sound like very respectful answers for someone that doesn't really love and serve and want to follow Jesus, it happens to be um, patronizing, very patronizing. But think about this. Jesus' family doesn't even say respectful things about him. They say he's crazy. They say he's a lunatic. He's embarrassing us. And these are the people that are closest to him. C.S. Lewis says something very similar about the, the tendency that we have in our human heart regarding statements that we make about Jesus. And here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. And here's what they say. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say, C.S. Lewis says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, that is, on the side of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up, shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not with any let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And I think this passage is making that point. Obviously, C.S. Lewis is making that point from um, from this text in Matthew. The response of Jesus' own family was not that he was a good moral teacher. In fact, his, his family had a, you know, kind of a, a more radical response. They say he was crazy, that he needed to come seize him and arrest him because he was embarrassing them and eventually going to embarrass themselves. They wanted to bind him up and sit him down and claim him 
to be a lunatic. Interestingly, the religious leaders that are following Jesus go a completely different route. They say he's a devil of hell. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He cast out the demons. We hear a little bit about Beelzebul in the Bible. Uh, he is uh, the Lord of the evil spirits. So there's a little bit written about Beelzebul in, in pagan literature, so much so that obviously in this time, the, the religious scribes give credence to him. And they're saying that, I mean, Jesus has the spirit of this Beelzebul in him. And so, I mean, this is tough stuff right here. What the scribes have done is they've done the same thing Jesus' family has done. They've decided already what to make of Jesus, and they don't make much of him. They're saying, this guy, we don't think he's a lunatic. We think that he has this, this evil spirit in him. And what makes that interesting is they're not denying his authority. They're not even denying his power. And, and here's why. They, they can't. Jesus is curing lepers. He's speaking words and healing people. He's, people are touching him, and they're being made whole. He's casting out demons. They can't deny his authority. And what happens oftentimes when the route that we want to take to deny or dismiss someone is blocked? We go around. We, we try a different way. What do they do? They recategorize Jesus, his issue. They say that he's a, that he's a, uh, a demon. He's demonized. He's filled with a demon. And of course, there's something very telling about this. And, and what I think is telling about it is it will be easy for all of us to be convinced that if Jesus just showed up in this room today, that if we heard him preach, that he even touched some of us, that we felt his presence, that we experienced all of who Jesus is, both in his, his, his words, but also just in the great power that Jesus has as the Son of God, that we would quickly make a decision and fall down on our faces and worship Jesus. But this text proves us differently, doesn't it? Because his family is close to him. More importantly, these religious leaders are close to him. They're hearing his words, they're seeing his miracles, and they absolutely aren't convinced at who Jesus is, so much so that they're labeling him labeling him something that he is absolutely very far from. And I think that's what, I mean, we can be misguided into thinking that if we saw Jesus with our own eyes, if he just showed up, did some miracles, that we'd all just follow him wholeheartedly, that all of our doubts, all the things that we struggle with, all the temptations that we have would just go away. And this text is proving that, and it's saying, nah, that's not really how sin works in you. We still need to make a decision about who Jesus is, and we would still uh, be required to make the decision to actually follow the Lord. We still have to make a decision to, not, um, to, to trust him and decide to follow him. Someone once said that trusting in Jesus is more than seeing him. In fact, the Bible would, would prove this true. Seeing is not believing, because here's his family. Here are scribes and Pharisees that are seeing Jesus. They're seeing him almost in his fullness, and they're not, through what they see, able to see him for who he is. Because these scribes wouldn't be calling him Satan if they actually saw 
who he was. They're seeing him in and out, these religious leaders. They're seeing him in the synagogues. They're seeing him in worship, just like we're in worship in this school today. They're watching him heal people, listening to him preach, seeing demons cast out, and it's only making them more hard-hearted towards him. It's not giving them faith. It's doing the exact opposite. And so what they see they ascribe not to Jesus, but they ascribe it to the kingdom of Satan. And those are, I mean, that's a staggering thought, right? To see the power of God on display and say, you know what? This is like weird. This must be of Satan. They call Jesus a demon. In fact, to his face, they say, you're filled with a demon. You're not filled with the Holy Spirit. You've got a demon. And what they've basically done is label Jesus. And this is just a, this is an implication of the text, not necessarily in the text. But this is what happens when you label people just like they're labeling Jesus. You, you dehumanize them. Right. You, you demonize them. What happens when we de, uh, we dehumanize people? Uh, we, we basically um, have reduced them to less than their base selves. And so we can say, we can feel like, we can feel justified, even righteous to do and say whatever we want. And that should make you think about the history of, of, the Amer- of, of America, right? When the Europeans came to North America and saw the Native Americans, they didn't know what to do with them. They, they called them savages. I mean, in other bad terms. And they, because they called, they labeled them in these demeaning terms, what happened? They killed them, they took their land, and now we've subject, subjected them to these reservations. Like, you stay right here in this little bubble and don't come out. And that's what happens when you label somebody. And just to make this a little more personal, I mean, perhaps you've seen it happen in your family or in your friends, but we label people, we label our friends and our family members, or even our neighbors, right? And it's not that we say this person does that or does that. You're a jerk. You're, you know, something else is that we 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 speak as if those people don't just do those things. They become those things. When you label someone, you don't just dehumanize them. You make it such that you are in your you're justified to do anything and say anything that you want to do about them. And of course, that's what's happening in our text. They're labeling Jesus a demon. And, and what that gives them license to do is take the first step to ultimately killing him. If he's a demon, he doesn't deserve to, be, to, to live. If he's a demon, then we need to get rid of this man because he's doing more harm to our society than, than the help that, that's apparent that he's doing through his power. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't label them back, although he does respond. And here's how he responds. He points out to them that what they're saying makes absolutely no sense. Verse 23. And he called to them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But his end is uh, is coming to an end. And basically what he's saying is, why would Satan work against himself? Why would Satan start a civil war against his own kingdom. In fact, if that's happening, you should be celebrating because at some point, Satan fighting against Satan is going to decimate all of him and his minions. But then in verse 27, he actually tells them what's really happening. Verse 27. 
But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. In other words, Jesus is, is saying, he says, you know, what? I, I'm not Satan, but I've bound up Satan and I've plundered his kingdom. That's what I'm doing. I'm exhibiting the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in and through my ministry. And this takes us all the way back to what Mark, how Mark opens up his gospel. Remember, he tells us he testifies about John the Baptist. He says, after me comes one who's mightier than I. And of course, who shows up? Jesus shows up. He's baptized. God anoints him for ministry. The spirit comes on him. And, and what does the spirit do? The spirit leads him out into the wilderness. And who's his first foe? He meets up with Satan himself. And through the word of his power, he's able to uh, withstand all the temptation of, of Satan. And, and in every way that, that Adam and, of course, the, the nation of Israel fails to dismiss Satan and his temptation, Jesus, in this first instance, succeeded. And so light should start popping off in, in our minds as you think about what Mark is showing us. Mark is showing us what Jesus' ministry is all about. From the very get-go, he's binding up Satan. Through the words that he speaks, through the miracles that he's doing, through, uh, through him casting out demons and devils, he's bringing the kingdom of God. What does the kingdom of God look like? It looks like, it looks like the power that's able to overcome the evil one. And Jesus is doing that uh, at every turn. And so these are signs that he's binding up Satan. Uh, you all remember, you ever um, recall in action movies how you just know a scene that somebody's placed in the movie? Um, kind of lightheartedly uh, to move the action on. Uh, I think of security guards. Every security guard in any action movie is, is going to get taken out, right? Think of uh, Mission Impossible, all the, uh, the Jason Bourne movies. You got a security guard there. It's like, oh, he's fodder. He's like, you know, he, in a second, that dude is taken out. Regardless of how buff the guy might look, uh, I think of, think of all the movies where the woman is, uh, is in the house or out for whatever reason, out in the woods and she's wearing like high heel shoes, running, running. Then she trips up, she's gone. It's like, it's like that. This is what happened. This is what's happening as Jesus brings the kingdom of God. It's breaking through. These people have, these people, these entities, these demonic spirits, Satan himself has no choice but to bow. Satan is through, uh, Jesus through his power, is going to defeat them. And we're seeing the very beginning of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God as Jesus continues to meet uh, uh, Satan and his, and his minions. He's causing exorcisms of demons. And, and what he's doing is he's enslaving people like you and I. He's, he's, he's saving and freeing all those who are like you and I who were enslaved by the grips of Satan himself. He's plundering Satan, giving us a glimpse of what it's going to be like finally in the new heavens and earth when he topples, topples him and crushes him forever. And so these religious people, these scribes, the Pharisees, they have a front row seat to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And guess what? They're missing it. And Mark is capturing that for us so we won't miss it. So we won't miss the kingdom of God breaking through 2000 years ago and recognize it as it's Come as it's breaking through even in our day. But what Jesus does is he reminds them, he, he, in fact, he rebukes them that the way they're responding to his ministry is a dangerous way to respond. Look at what he says back in, in, to them in t- verse 28. 
Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying that he has an unclean spirit. All right. So this this is a sermon all in and of itself. And there's a lot of people that have written and talked about these few verses. And of course, the question here is, is there an eternal sin? Is there a, is there some way that I can do something or say something against God that he actually won't forgive me? And I'm going to answer that question by by basically saying this. If you have ever wondered that or perhaps even worried that you've committed a sin, said something, done something that God won't forgive, chances are you haven't done it. Because if you're worried about it, the, I mean, the Holy Spirit wouldn't be working in you to make you worried. I mean, I mean, that kind of thing. So if you're worried about it, I mean, don't don't forget about it. But here's the key to the to, to these two verses here. Um, really, this whole text, we've got to put it in context. And, and this is a, a key point. The eternal or for unforgivable sin is rejecting Jesus for who he is. The eternal or unforgivable sin is rejecting Jesus for who he is. And that's what these religious leaders are doing. That's what this whole passage is about. This ongoing reaction, uh, rejection of the Holy Spirit's witness to the identity of Jesus. And so these verses aren't saying in particular that there's something that you can do that's really, really, really going to make God mad so that he won't forgive you. Think of all the people in the Bible that have done just some crazy things. Think of Paul and how he murdered people in the name of doing it for God and how God forgave him, redeemed him, and turned his whole ministry around. Think of people like him and then think of, I mean, could I do anything like that? Probably not. And so what's happening here, I mean, God wants you to know that you probably aren't going to commit the unforgivable sin. But here's the important thing. If you, it is important that you not reject Jesus because you'll be held responsible for that. And so if that's unforgivable, then that's the sin that's unforgivable. Um, N.T. Wright says uh, something very similar to um, in this regard. He says, if, if you had uh, some kind of injury in your body that required uh, a surgeon to come, and there's only one surgeon in the whole wide world that could put you back together again, and you, for whatever reason, Called, uh, thought in your mind that this surgeon was a sadistic murderer, he says very likely, even if that surgeon was equipped to perform the surgery and the only one in the world to do it, you probably wouldn't do it. And that, that's really what this is, this is getting at. This is akin to what the scribes have decided about Jesus. They have made up in their mind that this man is not a lunatic. He's got a devil in him. And whatever happens, whatever they say, whatever, he's, whatever they see, they've decided that He's he's got the devil in him and they have gone down a road that's going to lead them to eternal destruction. And Jesus wants them to know that it's a big deal to reject Jesus when you say in your heart that the work that he's doing of the spirit is really the work of Satan. All right. So it ends. and I got to end here uh, with Jesus and his family coming back. Look at verse 31. And the mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they said, sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And they answered, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my and my sister and my mother. There's nothing. that we should glean out of that, except for the fact that this is not how 
first century family folk should act, okay? If, if you're in the first century, your family was everything. And so our expectation should be, if there's anybody inside Peter's house in Capernaum with Jesus, it would be his family. And so obviously the opposite is happening. His family, his biological family comes up. Jesus is on the inside of the house. And those people that he's um, in inclusion with, in, in camaraderie with, aren't the people in his biological family. And if you're a first century person looking at this, this would have shocked you because that wouldn't have been so. In Jesus' day, you lived near, the, near your family. You grew up around your family. You wanted to be in your family. And so Jesus is not saying anything derogatory about his family in this text. What's happening is he's redefining the family. What's the family of God? It's not necessarily those who are biologically familial to me. The family of God are those who do the will of God. And so the family of God are those who see Jesus, who trust Jesus, who take him for who God has sent him to do, be the the, the redeemer of our souls, the forgiver of our sins, the one that we can trust to, uh, to give us eternal life. Those are the ones who are his true family. And he's redefining that. And it's not that he's ostracizing those who are part of his biological family. He says, all right, God is about creating not just a biological family, a family built on race, a family built on um, anything that's external to us. It's built by the spirit, by the spirit of God coming in us and drawing us together to be a part of of one family. And so this scene, as I close, should should I mean, it says a couple of things to us. Firstly, it should ask we should ask the question. Am I in or out? Like, am I a part of God's family? And if, and, and if, and if I'm not, what does it take to become a part of, of God's family? And really the way that you know, the way you start asking questions about being a part of God's family is to ask yourself this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's almost like C.S. Lewis. Is he the son of God? Is he a lunatic or is he the devil of hell? And there aren't multiple answers to that question. There really is one question. If he's a devil of hell, obviously we, we, we overpower him. If he's a lunatic, we bind him up. But if he's the son of God, like the text says he is, like, like these writers here testify that he is, then we have one choice, folks, and it's to fall on our knees and we bow down and we worship him. Who is a, who's included as a part of the family of God is those who love and serve and and trust Jesus. Verse 30 is for whoever does the will of God. Those are the ones that are included in God's family. Who do you say Jesus is? And based upon that, would you receive him today as the son of God? Here's a second thing. And this is, of course, an implication of the text. This text makes us know that, I mean, you can be close to Jesus, but it's, it's warning you can't assume. If you've grown up in a Christian family, if if you have parents that really love God, but that doesn't make you a Christian. You aren't a Christian because you have parents that were faith-filled. You aren't a Christian because you live in America. Don't we make that mistake all the time? It's just lunacy. That's lunacy. It's not being a Christian. It's not based on anything other than submitting yourself to Jesus, not submitting yourself to false assumptions as to your relationship to Christ because of those who are you, you are, are peripheral to you in your life. And lastly, for all of us, here's the message of this text. Jesus is inviting us into his family. That's why he came. 
And the way that he invites us in is he says there's one door and, and that you got to come through that doorway. And that doorway is acknowledging who I am, that I've come to redeem you, forgive you of your sin, acknowledging the fact that you actually do have sins and asking me to forgive you. And what does Jesus do? He forgives. He loves. He serves. He redeems. He takes all those ways that you think that you, that, that you have sinned against him, and he covers them with his blood, and he makes you new. And the, the, the invitation for us is to do that today, particularly if you've never done it before. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper, I want you to think about that. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. He lifted it up. He broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And as often as you come together, would you do this? Would you remember me? And then he took a cup of wine. And with that cup, he uh, again lifted it up. And he said, this cup is representing my blood, my blood that will be born from my own body that forms a new covenant, a new family, if you will. And when you drink it, you're remembering the, the cost, the ransom, the, the way that I've purchased you with my own blood. How I've invited you into my family, an eternal family. And, and, and so here's the thing about communion. We can, you know, we can do communion every week and do it as a tradition or a ritual. But when you think about it this way, communion is your invitation into the family. This meal that Jesus created the night before he would go to the cross and die in a place for our sin. It's this forever eternal kind of picture of, of you being invited into God's family. And you're invited to remember his sacrifice and to give thanks for all that Jesus is and all that he's done. And so I invite you to do that as we sing songs and and worship Jesus as I close. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for this picture of the family. Lord, we acknowledge that the family is kind of messed up right now, the family in our culture, in our day. We're becoming family-less in the United States, and that's to our own our own credit, well, we, we are the blame. It's the sin in us that causes, causes the, the sin in our world. And so, Lord, would you redeem us? Would you redeem us um, by, your, by your blood? Would you redeem us by the power of your name? Would you redeem us by your gospel? God, as we, um, as we come today and even take communion, would you remind us that you have invited us all into your family? And the one prerequisite is that we would be people who are zealous to do your will. Make us those kinds of people. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.